Welcome everybody back to Vale of Sound. It's video interview Sunday and I'm very glad that once in a while we totally fulfill our slogan lifting the veil off underground music because I have somebody here whose band is high on a lot of lists but not on enough lists. So I'm very happy to have Alistair Dunn here from Ashenspire. Alistair, thanks for being on the show. It's a total delight to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. Um, and we were also fortunate because Alistair once in a while is a Scot that you can understand. <laughs> Still remember my first encounter with the Scottish language like 25 years ago when somebody asked Stuart from Mokwai, what is your aim in music? And Stuart said something like, only want to be louder than men of war. <laughs> what an admirable uh, goal. Um, I, I have quite a, a variety of accents depending on who I'm talking to, but um, this accent is a is a is a a real mix of different things. Um, my mom is from Belfast, so there's a little bit of Northern Ireland in there too. But yeah, um, I'm I'm glad I'm intelligible for everybody. Yes, at home. you are. You are totally fine. Um... I'm, I'm just writing down a few questions for later because we'll Don't also worries. have our infamous quickfire round at the end. But um, I want to start off with something that I thought I could from now on ask everybody on my show or on our show. So, uh, Alistair, first question, which, especially for those people who are listening to us via podcast, Alistair, which band shirt are you wearing today? Um, I'm wearing uh, the Vile Creature and Bismuth album shirt, uh, A Hymn of Loss and Hope, which I got at oh. Roadburn this year. Um, it was, was a really cool. special performance seeing both of those incredible bands like working together. Um, and yet, managed to, like after that, make pals with them. And yeah, it's just really special music. Um, yeah, lovely people, really beautiful souls in yeah, those bands as well. Fake. So, and for everybody who's asking what I'm wearing once in a while, I'm wearing one of our own shirts. <gasps> so, uh, if anybody wants to get a Veil of Sound shirt, we might go for another run in a few months. Good work. Get that self-promo in there. <laughs> so, Alistair, where are we catching you right now? Um, I'm at home um, in Edinburgh at the moment, uh, where I, I live and work. Um, uh, the band is like ostensibly from Glasgow and I lived there for a very, very long time, like 10 years. But now the band is a little more scattered all over Scotland. But you're basically a Scottish band. So it's not as if we're talking about somebody whose band is strewn across all of the UK, right? For sure. For sure. Like everyone is, is um, in Scotland for sure. So yeah. Um, Thankfully, there's not not huge amounts of travel to and from Edinburgh is mostly the the majority of the travel that needs done. And can you, for all those who are still ashamed as you should be, um, unacquainted with Ashenspire, can you tell our listeners what you do in the band? Um, well, I, I play the drums and I on record I do all the vocals. I write the lyrics and I write quite a lot of the music. 
generally organize things, uh, make stuff happen. Um, you might, I don't know, creative direction is might might be what you what you say I do. Um, uh, but yeah, like um, yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> a bit of, a bit of loads of stuff, um, but but mostly drums. Jack of all trades. Master of maybe one or two. <laughs> Um, Alistair, then another question that comes up, as you say that, well, I'm a drummer and I do the vocals on the record. Um, I mean, there are lots of vocalists who began as a drummer. I still vividly remember uh, the guy in Comeback Kit who went onto the mic after their first singer left, or also the drummer for Snuff, the English punk institution, who's also yeah. singing. But how are you going to do it live? Um, do do? I, I I don't. Uh, that's 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 the crucial key bit. I do a little bit of vocals live. There's um, a little section in the middle of Cable Street again where okay. um, the drums all cut out and it's kind of there's this ranty sort of section. So I tend to do that live. But um, uh, Rylan Gleave, who is also on the record, he wrote How the Mighty of Vision, and he did the sort of the tenor and bass voices on that he has been doing live vocals with us for years at this point so he does that and i play the drums but i've i've done vocals live once as well when we had our friend uh george henry from gendo akari playing um like just for the one show uh, and that was really interesting it was a really cool experience to be uh front and center but um, I, I drums are my first love, um, and to me, like part of the expression that's involved in uh, performing Ash Inspires music is as much drums as it is vocals. Although I know for a lot of people, they connect more strongly with the with the vocal performance. Um, I yeah, the drums are still really special to me. So I, I and it's also a lot harder to find drummers than it is to find vocalists. I can imagine. Um, so let's talk for a short bit about your own musical journey. Um, mm. I, I tried to do a little bit of research on you, and I saw that you did some guest vocals on, for example, Vitam Eternum's record, or you mm -hmm. did some programming for Tyrannus. Is there anything where you say, like, okay, I'm basically from that scene or from this field of music where I come from? Um. If I'm from any scene, I'm from the Glasgow metal scene. Mm -hmm. um, I moved to Glasgow in 2012 for uni, and I was at that point in a folk metal band um, called Nord Robring, who are sat <laughs> perhaps thankfully lost the annals of history. Um, and I've been in a, a few different bands since then. Um, more sort of tending towards, well, I don't know, like I've done quite a broad variety of things. Um, I've been in a couple of power metal bands, the most recent of which was Farseer, who've been like a really long-standing uh, power metal band in Glasgow. Um, I've done a few black metal bands. Um, I was in an experimental band called, uh, experimental black metal band called Eneract. Um a few years ago, 
which then kind of um like I, me and one of the guys from interact and order roaming we were originally writing for ash inspire back in 2013 um and as as drummers tend to be, you get involved in loads of different stuff. I've been in uh, sort of DBT punk bands like Venom Wolf. I've been in more kind of thrashy bands like Tyrannus. Uh, I'm currently in a sort of um, sludgy doom project called Forever Machine. But of course, I've been asked to do guest stuff on a couple of different weird projects like that Vita Maternum record. Um, did some guest vocals on that. And then on their new one, I did some drums. Um, um, I've been on a couple of Pensei's Nocturnes records uh, doing guest vocals. That was really, really fun to be part of. Um, shout out to them uh, for making the most bizarre music in the world. Um, yeah, I, I'm really blessed to be surrounded by a lot of um, really creative, uh, interesting people. And, and get to like leave my grumpy uh, thumbprints all over it. Um, I'm just looking forward to what comes next. In fact, I've got another album that's uh, I've recorded over the summer uh, with a, a member of a fairly prominent uh, UK black metal band. So I'm excited to talk about that when that comes out. But you've also done some visual art work right? Because I saw that you did um, covers for Fen and for Midnight Force. That's right. Um, yep. Is that something that you pursue with a lot of effort or are you still saying, okay, I'm, I'm still more of a musician? It, you know, it's interesting that because I think really I'm an artist rather than a musician. Um, now, I say this because I, I have no like musical um academic achievements to speak of um whereas i pursued art for quite a long time in school and the only reason i ever kind of slowed down with it was i couldn't afford the materials that um i used to work with i used to be a painter um paint is expensive so i started doing illustration with just kind of pen and ink um and so there's the the stone and sea lp cover that i did um the midnight force cover um, I did another thing for the guys in Midnight Force uh, not that long ago, a compilation that they were part of. Um, I've done t-shirt designs for a bunch of different people. Um, the special edition of the last Fen record, um, the Dead Light, um, did a bunch of illustrations for that. I've done illustrations for Imperial Triumphant in their graphic novel for Val Luxury, um, t-shirt design for A Forest of Stars, like I, I really love doing the illustration, but it is something that's very slow and something that takes a lot of uh, time and effort. Um, and it can be quite therapeutic because I work with a pointillist style. So it's kind of, it's slow and methodical, but because I'm so busy, I often don't sit down and just, just work on that. Um, so I, I think I... In, in a way, I'm more of an artist, but they very much bleed in together to me. And I do a lot more music now than I do art. So, um, yeah, I, it's kind of hard to say how I see myself there, but... Um, always hard to say. And truly. i just very eager to make stuff. Uh, always making stuff. 
I've seen that because when I looked up your musical contributions to records, I had a feeling as if most of it started like six, seven, maybe eight years ago, which is not a lot of time, right? Um, mm. But let's get let's get to Hostile Architecture, the mm. latest, second and latest uh, album by Ashenspire. Um, the album is now out for a few months. We praised it as much as we can do because it deserves all the praise it can get. Um, Thank you very much. How happy are you with the reactions that you got so far? Uh, I'm I'm pretty astounded to be honest. Um, I always believed in the record. But I didn't always think it would reach as many people as it could. Um, I was kind of, uh, I, I sort of believed that it, it would come out and it would matter to a couple of people. And and then it would kind of, it would be about the next thing that we'd work on. But the response has been incredible, like really, really overwhelmingly um, humbling. You know, like some really, really talented writers and critics coming out and saying really beautiful things about it. The personal connection that a lot of listeners have had from it, uh, had with it. And I've sh they've shared that with us, um, has, has been really, uh, really powerful, really beautiful. Um, there was one person, uh, who left a review on Bandcamp that said, this music makes me want to quit my job. And I was like, what a review. That's incredible. Yeah, um, that's like one of the biggest compliments you can get <laughs> for for this kind of music yeah um it's yeah it's been really really amazing um i can't quite believe it um but we will go with it you know super happy that that everyone's yeah. enjoying it as much as as we have uh, and hoping to like share that more you know live with people uh, in the coming couple of years so whenever I listen to the record, I just have like a rush of blood to the head, so to speak, because it's just such a highly explosive amalgam, you know? How yeah. was that writing process? How how did you go about writing the record and the music and the lyrics? Um, so the... Because I know that you did most of the writing for that record, mm. right? just a few parts and elements that were not totally by you. Uh, the... Uh, Baton Brute, the second track on the record, was written by Scott McLean, who's uh, like a close collaborator. Um, and he wrote it with this sort of idea of maintaining um, intensity throughout uh, a piece, uh, ever really letting up and just sort of like trying to uh, trying to meet the sort of energy that's present in Ash and Spire while, uh, and how the might of vision was, was written by Rylan as I mentioned earlier. Um, in terms of how I went about writing the rest of the record, um, inspiration for music comes infrequently to me. Um, I don't often find myself going, I need to, I need to write something down, but occasionally something will just appear and all of a sudden there'll be this idea. Um, sometimes it's a chord progression, sometimes it's um a rhythmic device um usually if, if on a on a good day i'll have sat down with the guitar and played something and go oh there's something there let's put that in and then just kind of develop it slowly uh and iteratively over time so adding bits here re-listening to it changing that 
and trying to like focus in on the details of everything and seeing how the, the piece flows. But it, it's slow and it's uh, it's methodical. I write a lot of stuff on um, Tux Guitar, which is like free Guitar Pro. Um, and so I'm like programming a lot of stuff before anything gets played. Um, but yeah, like like maybe, I mean, the first track that we wrote was Platinum by Persephone Praxis. And that is basically just kind of two ideas. Uh, but like I was trying to, rather than, because uh, Speak Not, the, the, our first album is very heavy on ideas. There's a lot of stuff happening all the time, dancing between uh, this section and that section and um, not really dwelling enough on the, the the strength of the ideas that are there and not developing them. So that was kind of a goal for like writing this time around. Um, but yeah, like all the different pieces uh, that I wrote kind of came about like that, really. A lot of listening, re-listening, tweaking, adding, and the final touches of writing happened in the studio because there's only so much you can plan for. There's only so much you can program. And there's a few bits that, you know, you, you get into the studio and the part you've written doesn't work. And ideally, and like, like we would have been able to play through the whole record multiple times over and rehearsed it and really like wrung out all of the, the problems, but because we were doing it in the pandemic, we didn't have the time. Uh, we, we couldn't actually get together and play the album together. So the first time we played the album all the way through together was after the album was recorded and released. Um, so, yeah, so, so there's, there's a few bits, bits on there that... So you Sorry, all go recorded ahead. your bits individually? Um, we recorded them in the same studio um, together, mm -hmm. um, but you know they weren't. It, was, it wasn't recorded live or anything like that. We weren't all playing together, um, but we did manage to get the whole thing done in about two weeks, um, all just working together. We, we had the issue with the first album of recording some things at a studio and some things at home and reamping them, and it, it just. It meant that the recording the album took like a year, whereas this one it was it was two weeks and it was done and it that felt a lot better and I th I think you can hear it in the record, actually. Definitely, and it also of course benefits the sound of a record. I think the record, although it's vibrating a lot and although it seems to never sit still at any moment, um, or at most most of the time, um, it still feels as if it's one constant flow and that is something that is pretty amazing for a record that is basically all over the metal scene you know there are yep. free jazz metal elements there are black metal there you have like some slower stuff you have some post-punky stuff and it's basically all over the plate but it's still because of the sound feels like one consistent flow of energy which is awesome mm -hmm. and I don't know, but you know, you have a few guest collaborators on that record, like Amaya from Maud the Moth and mm -hmm. Healthy Living, or yep. Scott from Fellock. Um, how did these things happen? How did it 
come to the point that they worked on your record and how much did you tell them what you wanted? Um, well, Scott was always going to be part of it. I mean, he's been on every single thing that Ash Inspire has done. He's, he's as much a part of Ash Inspire as, as I am at this point. Um, and he, we demoed stuff originally with him ahead of Speak Not. And I remember thinking that I just really wanted to work with him and make a, a whole record together. Um, so, and, and I, I knew him because um, I'd played in Falach for a little bit, like years and years ago now. Um, and so we just kind of stayed working together. We kept making music. He was playing guitar live for us. He still does. Um, and yeah, so I, I just, he's got such... Um, wonderful insight about music like music is his whole life he's obsessed with it um and there's something really special about that like like he, he sees music in a way that almost no one i've spoken to does so he, he was a an easy sell uh on on working with uh amaya um i knew also kind of through Faluch, um and she'd done a little bit of stuff with them. Um, and we were putting together a, a vocal quartet for How the Mighty of Vision. And she's a very talented singer. Um, Maud the Moth, of course, like uh, make beautiful, beautiful music. Um, she has this lovely voice. And we so she was going to do the soprano part. Rylan was going to do the tenor part. We had two other people. And then COVID happened. So she ended up doing all of the the, the high voice parts. Um, we get, oh, uh, there's um, Roberto from Botanist as well at Otterbor. Oh, yeah. um, he, I briefly met when Interact played a show with Botanist and Kyodot. Um, oh, what year would that have been? 2015, maybe? um 2016 in in edinburgh um and i just i love the sound of hammered dulcimer it's just this it's like nothing else it's this really special uh percussive sound that i i love you i mean there's piano which is, is of course percussive and strings but yeah dulcimer is is this whole other thing i love the trills you can get out of it. anyway yeah. so like when i wrote dulcimer parts there's who else you're gonna go to but botanist for for yeah. that uh, and so that was like really special that we got to work with him as well. So if you were to place Ash Inspire's music into any kind of concert context, I'm not talking about genres because uh -huh. I know that you and me, we probably don't give an F about genres, right? Uh, especially not with, all that with useful band, like, with this kind of music. Yeah, especially with Ash Inspire, you know, like how to classify that kind of stuff. But if you had to like curate a one day festival with Ash Inspire and let's say three more bands, which bands would you have or would you like to have? Um, I would, okay, I would absolutely pick um, a band from Denmark called Narco Satanicos, um, who are noise rock and jazz and oh 
a million other things, but they are like they're super high energy, hypnotic, intense music. Um, and they're they're friends and comrades as well. So um like that that's a no-brainer. Uh we'd have Narco Satanicus. Um they're supposed to have a record coming out at some point soon because it's been way too long since their last one and their new stuff sounds amazing. Um if I could if I could possibly get Altar of Plagues to reform for one show, it it would be <laughs> that. Like I would I would kill for that. That would be incredible. Um we'd probably have some like heavy, disgusting music. Uh no, some something really say again, sorry? Elton John, Elton yeah, John. exactly. <laughs> Completely. Uh, um <laughs> ugly disgusting. You you know it. Um oh plebeian grandstand. I'd love to have of them like yeah. do some like really gnarly, horrible oh 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 liturgy. We'd have to have liturgy um oh. do some some crazy art music. All that would be so amazing. Four or five already, so your day is already full. Oh well, there we go. Sorted. Yeah, I, I'm sure there's a... more that I do beyond that, but like that's a that's a good mix, I think. Definitely, definitely. Especially an altar of plagues reunion would benefit. Oh, can you imagine the whole Oof. world? I think. <laughs> but for everybody, when I listened to the record, um, I was struck by the title, and I talked to Alistair about it, and we both quickly got into the idea of spending a larger part of his interview on talking about architecture and its mm. combination or connection to people and mm. so let's start with the most obvious question of course what is hostile architecture for you um, probably also the most complicated so, one. yeah so i mean like what i'll I'll, I'll lay out what the dictionary definition is for people who've not come across it uh, and then i'll talk about maybe a little more of my interpretation of it um so hostile architecture on paper is uh, anything that is designed to prevent misuse uh by by the the user uh, if you like so but misuse being like defined by the designer um so for example um let's say we have like a railing uh that's that skaters might want to like grind along and whatever you put like something in the way that would like throw the the board off that's hostile architecture it prevents the the person or that it's around um from using it in a way not intended by the designer um other examples are like benches with armrests in the middle that prevent the homeless from sleeping on them and the the, the anti-homeless spikes that we talk about on the record um for me though i like, also have uh, i also have an example when i please. think about it and um one example is the berlin wall um, okay. because in order to prevent people being able to climb the wall they put hollow tubes on it onto the top and they even attested those tubes how big they must be in order for a person not to be able to grab around um, it. 
Right. So that is the design part of hostile architecture for me. And and a very a pertinent one, like uh, the, the, like like with a far more explicitly political motive than perhaps what like the album's responding to. But yeah, that's that's actually a really interesting and useful example. I didn't know about that. Um, but yeah, so. I think that's a great place to jump off. Like hostile architecture more broadly can be described as like, how is, how are, is the, the material conditions of society designed in such a way that they cannot um, disadvantage the designers of society? Like how, how does, how is the status quo maintained and reinforced? Um, so like we we could look at the I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about some more of this later but um the ways in which for example uh, here's one i've been thinking about quite a lot recently because um we have in the country at the moment quite a lot of striking workers um and i'm sure like a lot of other countries around the world have this as well if they have strong unions um which i hope they do and specifically in Britain, especially since Thatcher uh, came to power uh, in the 80s, and actually since then there's been developments of this, actually organizing to strike for better conditions as a, as a member of the working class has become increasingly difficult because what constitutes a legal strike has become increasingly more difficult to achieve. You know, oh, you need this percentage of people to vote you need this percentage of people to agree with striking and, and this, that, and the other thing. Um, and this, these sets of rules are like forms of legislative hostile architecture that prevent society from being manipulated into working for the majority of people uh, and, and maintain the power of the, the, the ruling class. Um, so... Yeah, that's more of a an, an institutional component of of hostile architecture, um, which isn't its dictionary definition. Uh, but I think, especially in the context of the album and um, capitalist realism, which we'll probably talk about later, uh, is yeah, like I, I think fully applicable as a term. I was also thinking about something along similar lines, but also reflecting a little bit more on the architectural point of view is mm. that um, of course um, there is a certain kind of hostility of buildings against others as a symbol of overpowering them yeah you know a symbol of being stronger than others yes. and i i had in mind like medieval castles but also other stuff and when i looked at the lyrics and i tried to do that with nearly everything that we will talk about i i think i found a very interesting line in how the mighty have vision mm -hmm. because there you say how they the mighty mm -hmm. stand there crestfallen that those they hold in contempt still need somewhere to shelter when they run out of rent mm. does that go along those lines you know that people are forced to being unable to do something um, like, for example, finding shelter because the system has kicked them out of their home. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so when I wrote that text, it was like from the kind of, uh, I was thinking about landlords um, mm-hmm. quite a lot um, who I, I find just just the position of being a landlord is uh, to me like ethically untenable like i can't see any justification for basically having someone live somewhere and then saying if you don't give me this money every month i will kick you out of the place you live mm-hmm. whether or not like i mean like obviously lots of people own a property that they don't live in but when there are people who have nowhere to live, having people own more than one place to live mm-hmm. seems immoral uh, to begin with. Um, so, like, I think that the when it comes to, when it comes to that song, it, it's this. It was kind of also like bringing to mind the construction of social housing um, in in Glasgow, where a lot of uh, the social housing that was constructed in the mid to late 20th century was kind of the product of a number of vanity projects for particular like politicians and councillors mm-hmm. in Glasgow. And then the, the so the, there was a lot of grandiosity associated with them, but they actually weren't fit for purpose. They were they were poorly designed. There was a lot of cut corners in them, and they ended up being basically derelict and in very poor condition. And people were still having to live there. So it was kind of these two these two ideas. Um, like even though like they they might have thought they've constructed this 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 great world and they're so great these people um, they that they've come up with these solutions. They're the heroes in this scenario. Um, the the actual people who are affected by the decisions made by these people are um, they're still human beings. They still have they have basic needs that need to be met for our society to be even considered to be functioning. And even if there's nothing left to exploit, you know, if they've got nothing left to have stolen from them, they still need have those needs met. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's one of the things that, that, that the, the term affordable housing gets me, you know, like, yeah, yeah, I know that, like, like, um, housing shouldn't be affordable. It should be a right, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, it's, it's not this thing that it's like a human basic human right for you. Right. Exactly. It's, it's something that you can't survive without. So it should just be something that you have, um, you know, like like healthcare, which we just have in the UK, which we're you know we're, we're at for now. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, like so. So let me let me step in there for a second. Then of course, I would guess that you are a total opponent of, for example, companies like Airbnb, who are completely based on the fact that people own more living space or houses or apartments than they can actually live in. So you're, Mm -hmm. I guess you're opposed against Airbnb and gentrification or however you want to call it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And all of these companies that 
um, that have employees that aren't employees uh, so that they don't have to provide uh, any like standard of working conditions or anything like that. Uber and all of that, like, yes, mm -hmm. uh, opposed to all of them. Um, in fact, um, when I was in Germany in 2016, um, I stayed in Leipzig in a abandoned building. Um, and that was just, people were living there. Um, and, and I, as far as I'm aware, uh, this, the situation was you, you can live there for as long as you like, um, as long as you keep the place livable, do a bit of DIY, you know, make sure that, that it is a place that people can live and there's no rent. You just, you just live there. And I thought that's brilliant. That's amazing. Cause we have so many derelict buildings in the UK that are boarded up and no one can get into perfectly serviceable buildings, you know, um, just artificially walled off. They're not dangerous or anything like that. It's just someone owns them. Right. So, so no one can go into them. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, if it's too expensive to own multiple places, uh, so you need to rent them out, then you shouldn't own multiple places. Yeah. Like, I get that it's nice to have somewhere to go away on holiday and just be yours, right? Your your little place away, but like until all the homeless are homed, that's not something that is a priority to, to me, at least. So what happens when you think of places like Billionaire's Row in Manhattan, where they are basically constructing all those pencil skyscrapers, you know, for example, that one, I forgot the name of it, which is basically what 120 stories of uh, each story, roughly 85 square meters or something, or 100 square meters, where it's like basically for, for Manhattan comparisons, a small apartment, but it's expensive as F, because it's right on Billionaire's Row. What happens when you see such places? Can you still I, enjoy being in a city like that? Uh, I find really big cities actually very difficult to be in, personally. Um, just generally, like I, I find London like really claustrophobic. I feel like it's bearing down on top of me. And that might be because I'm Scottish and London has a population greater than my entire country. Um, True, and it I might remember. be that... I, Yep, it might be that I'm from the country, so I'm used to like looking around and seeing green, um, and these monstrosities towering over you are just, you know, you don't get skyscrapers to the same degree in in Glasgow. There's tall buildings, there's some really tall buildings, but in these big cities, they're like, I they 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 give me a sickening feeling, um, and the idea of these. I mean, it's, it's the same in London, um, but there's there's very, very little living space in these sorts of apartments. And they are, yeah, like you say, they're charging huge amounts of money for anyone to live in them. Um, I don't think, I don't think rent should exist. You know, I, I don't think there should be this, I, it feels like a, uh, like, like blackmail or or ransoming or something like that, um, to like continually 
yeah, hold hold homelessness as this like threat uh, for for rent. Um, so yeah, stuff like billionaires row. It, for a start, if you're a billionaire, uh, that is a problem. That is a serious, serious problem. There should be no billionaires. Um, you can't become a billionaire through your own hard work. It is not possible. Um, so you've got to have trodden on a lot of people's heads to get there. Um, or you have misused a lot of people. Well, that, that's it, right? Like, um, it's, it's every penny that Jeff Bezos has was earned by someone else and stolen yeah. by him. Would you then agree that architecture, in a way, can enlarge the divide between rich and poor to a point where it's just unbelievable? Yeah. Um, I mean, the there are certain, I mean, we're talking about some of these buildings, some of these institutions where it's accepted to like create a very small place that's extremely expensive to live in. Um, I think that, I mean, for a start, like some of these places can can bankrupt people just from from rent. I mean, wages aren't high enough to like um, to give people room to like meaningfully save uh, for the for the majority of people. You know, like for most people, half to two thirds of your income goes on on rent. It, it it's and rent and council tax and bills and all the rest of it. And what are you left with at the end? Enough money for food, maybe. Um, so in that sense, those sorts of setups absolutely enlarge the the, the gap between rich and poor. Um, I think perhaps the, the stratification of different areas of a city between like the... I mean, I suppose this is a classic like thing with regards to um, sections of cities uh, being good or bad, right? Um, and redlining and, and stuff like this. It's all kind of if you if we create a um, a deprived area or an area where it's affordable to to buy houses, so people who don't have very much move there, then because like poverty is higher you're more likely to have things like crime um uh there's as a result of that less kind of stability um more mental health problems worse less access to getting a good education yeah 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 so like and then that you know is the cycle of poverty now those people can't escape from that whereas if you grow up in a nice area, you're more likely to get a better education uh, or like uh, an education that you can access more. Your health is likely to be better. You're less likely to be subject to a violent crime. And then you're more likely to go on to, like the other people in your community, achieve well and earn. And yeah, that the society becomes further stratified in that way. Um, one thing that we talked about a little bit on the law of asbestos is that some of these pieces of architecture are so poorly made 
that they actually have an impact on the health and well-being of the people that live in them. So, oh, you absolutely. mean that line? Um, this is not a house of amateurs. This is done with full intent. Um, I think rather that <laughs> I don't think that people deliberately set out to put asbestos in the walls of the poor, but yeah. I do think that asbestos is cheap, and that the when it was discovered that it was unsafe it's expensive to remove. And so I think that um, it's oftentimes people are the victims of cost cutting rather than um, malice from the state. Um, but the outcome is the same. I mean, you get you, if you've, I don't know if you've seen the, the data on lead paint in red line states in America or red line districts. Um, well, like one of these, like lead paint is cheap, right? It's cheap as hell, and it's cheap, is, and therefore people use it, and yeah, yeah. Um, and it's also, I mean, it's it's illegal now, but there's a lot of old houses in these districts in America, and where disproportionately um, African American people live, and it's been you can correlate the use of lead paint with violent crime in these communities because of the effect it has on um, development and anger management. Um, and it's like the the literal houses that they live in Make are like, are, are criminogenic and like, which is, or at the very least, like poverty perpetuating, which is mad, uh, but, I don't think uh, all that unusual a story, to be honest. No, it's not. And it's also seen in history. I mean, like when you think of tuberculosis, like a hundred mm. years ago, which communities were struck highest by tuberculosis? It were exactly the same kind of communities where the poor were living in very bad housing conditions, heating conditions. And of course, they were struck heaviest by tuberculosis. And mm. Would you say that in some way, architecture, without being thought through and without enough data or scientific research on, for example, something like asbestos, when those things are used, would you say that it can be a crime, at least a moral crime? Yes. Um, I, I would say that you can, yeah, if you, if you don't do your due diligence to like creating a place for somewhere to live, then uh, for someone to live in, then you are, you are doing them harm. I mean, Grenfell Tower is a great example, which we talked about on the record as well. The cladding that was flammable was cheap. So that was the one they got. And it's kind of the same um i think there will be a lot of people in the uk this year who will die because they in the winter because they're too cold and they can't afford to heat their houses properly because our houses a lot of them are very old and very poorly designed for the actual weather that we have um like you go to somewhere like finland and their houses are brilliantly insulated against cold and they can handle the heat in summer as well. But here, our houses are like cheap and rubbish or, or old and drafty. And 
with fuel prices being the way they are, um, I th- I think it will be it will be death anyway. Like for for a lot of vulnerable people, um, whether we would class that as a a crime that we could assign to any particular person or not is kind of irrelevant. There's a responsibility of the of the state and society at large to make sure that people's needs are met in a way that is is meaningful. When I thought about it, I mean, like, of course, I'm a history teacher, so I also looked at it from an historical point of view. Mm. Uh, not only have there throughout human history, there have always been places that were deliberately designed to destroy or kill other people. And, you know, we don't even have mm. to talk about bunkers or anything. We could also go back to ancient times where the great Archimedes whom a lot of people admire for his philosophy and mathematical things. But the guy also made a living by building defense mechanisms in Syracuse. And so there have been things like that. Buildings completely designed to kill people. Mm -hmm. That, of course, is hostile architecture. We don't have to talk about that. That is clear. But sometimes the construction of a certain building can also be hostile in itself or can occur in in hostile conditions. You know, let's think about the pyramids Mm. which were built by slave labor. Let's think about castles or a palace, a palace like Versailles, which was basically Mm. built on a swamp. So people not only had to work long hours to build that castle but also they very quickly caught diseases yes and now when we think about modern times is there any kind of morale in or or like any kind of appeal in for example something like the soccer world cup being or football world cup for our european friends uh being held in qatar this year where stadiums have been constructed by slave labor first of all do you see any kind of appeal of watching something like that i mean you're british and brits usually love football and second of all would you agree that countries like ours no matter if it's it's uk or if it's germany or any other western european or western hemisphere country that they should have prevented something like that from happening uh i mean for a start uh, i hate football Uh, i can't stand it um (laughs) so i automatically don't think it's justified to have um well, I probably don't think it's justified to build football stadiums anyway, but particularly not with slave labor. Um, I've got some some maybe hot takes on on football that we, I can maybe share later. But um, Panem et Circensis. Say again. Red and games. <laughs> Sorry. The old Roman saying. Just oh right, right. Bread uh, and games. Just uh, if if you give the people bread and circuses. No, no more problems. That's that's basically it, actually. Uh, that's the extent of my hot take, is that if you can just 
keep the working class at each other's throats instead of uh, paying attention to anything else, then, you know, that's a lot easier for you. But um, the in terms of the role of the state in 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 all of this um it's kind of it's maybe related to something we were addressing on our first record um maybe not explicitly linked in but i mean a lot of the the i mean slave labor for example um is the result of the need for a cheap labor force in a capitalist world um justified through racism and so on and so forth um but the the goals of it are purely about profit they're purely about um growth and generating wealth with the minimum expenditure it's kind of just a, a simple equation if anything um but the the results of that are are catastrophic and appalling and i think that the these sorts of things being built with uh, at the expense of the people creating them is i mean obviously the pyramids are pre-capitalism but um uh, until the 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 priority is the 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 well-being of all members of a society um this feels like something that will kind of inevitably come up again and again uh, even if it's not actual like full-on chattel slavery but wage slavery um and you know so on and so forth yeah until uh, until we have moved past uh the need for a cheap labor force and have moved towards a um a society of fulfilled individuals uh rather than this amorphous mass of um worker drones um maybe then we'll have moved past it but um i don't foresee our current states doing anything about it um uh, as much as it is their responsibility um, because as capitalist states, they have a vested interest in maintaining uh, a cheap labor force. To, to pose something that maybe some other people are also thinking right now, and uh, I just have to ask that, would you consider yourself a socialist, an anti-capitalist, or somebody who is neither but who first wants to see let's say a humanist who wants to see basic human needs being fulfilled before we talk about anything else uh i definitely want to see all human needs being met um i don't think these things are necessarily mutually exclusive at all i would say that i am an anti-capitalist and i am a socialist um Absolutely. Yes. Um, I believe in a world where um, all oppressive hierarchies are dismantled and 
people are freed from the uh the the shackles of wage labor like i don't want people to have to work or starve i i think people should be fed and clothed and housed and after all of that they should be allowed to like use their time and talent and energy to pursue something meaningful to them and sometimes that will be helping society function but i think if if some people want to spend their lives just you know painting pictures i think that's great i think that's brilliant that is something very worthwhile but something that i have to ask in that connection is um because coming from a sociological and political background i have yeah. to ask but then you're also aware that all of that anti-capitalist and socialist and humanist can only work without nations. Yes, right? I agree with that. But then you would probably, I guess, be totally okay with the United Nations taking over a much stronger position, wouldn't you? Um. A real I, world governance position. I think I mentioned before that I believe in the dismantling of all oppressive hierarchies. And I think what that would involve would be power being distributed amongst uh, much smaller communities rather than being centralized as a single world government over everything. That is simply just one more hierarchy. It's just that you, you well, don't I, I have guess it would depend on how world the hierarchy is constructed but I, I can i can see where you're coming from very interesting point yes well i i basically i think the communism has failed in so many countries because they took authoritarianism and tried to use that to establish socialism and it, it just doesn't work because as soon as you start distributing power unevenly then you've just created another hierarchy and you return to an oppressive system. I know what you mean. And um, I mean, like, of course, there is also the counter argument that, for example, the German Democratic Republic failed as a economic state because uh, without the incentive of having some kind of professional gain, if you are working hard and if you are doing something worthwhile, uh, without that incentive, people, for example, in the supermarket, they just didn't fill the shelves because, well, they would get their wages anyway. I know what you mean. It's always the question of what comes first, the incentive of being promoted or the feeling of a necessity of serving your community. Um, I, I, I think totally I'll, I'll... see where you come from. I think a lot of the, the issues with those jobs is that they're uh, rubbish and no one wants to do them. And I think true. that's completely also. understandable. Um, but there's a lot of like meaningless labor, a lot of stuff that is not, um, that, that doesn't fulfill people, that still needs done. Um, but a lot of that could be automated. Like we see automation in the modern world as quite a negative thing because it removes 
like people from their jobs. It, it, yeah. make, it makes it, it, it leads to redundancy. Um, it creates but, unemployment. Exactly. But unemployment is only a problem if the people who are unemployed don't receive the benefits of the automation. So the automation is pursued because it maximizes profits for the capitalist. But if the job is being done by the robot, the robot does not need paid. But the workers who were doing the job of the robot can now just take their wage anyway, rather than it going into the like, into the, the and, and pile of profit. Going into the capitalist cycle. I know what you mean. Um, I think that if if we could just stack shelves with robots, I think that would be good. Of course. Um, <laughs> And, and uh, well, basically, you don't even need robots for that. Uh, for stacking the shelves, it, just the way of how you create a supermarket. Exactly. Or a market. Yeah. The yes. idea of a supermarket itself, again, is already capitalist, right? So depending on how you create the market, um, you could do that without any kind of robot. Let's go back to where we started from. And that was we're, we're very far. Any kind of no, that's totally fine. Um, I, I love political excursions. Uh, we've been talking about hostile architecture. And yes. Whenever I think of a term, I first think of the Plattenbau, which you mentioned, or I yeah. think of. Uh, for, for everybody who's not familiar with the term, Plattenbau is a kind of uh, highly efficient, highly dense uh, kind of skyscraper, not skyscraper, but big Terror block. apartment blocks uh, where, where like a lot, lots of people live in, in a square foot that they would normally not live in, usually like 12 to 25 stories and basically something up between 100 and 250 apartments or something like that. Uh, and Plattenbau, the term comes from the way that those buildings were constructed back in the German Democratic Republic and other um, Eastern European countries, yeah. uh, where you basically took uh, pieces of already finished pieces of a building, set them together and constructed big apartment buildings through that. Uh, so First thing that comes to my mind when thinking about hostile architecture is Plattenbau, and second of all is British brutalism, as I called it for myself. Uh, we yes. all know, we all have those images in our head. If you don't, then have a look, for example, at um, the cover for uh, Russian Circle's Geneva record, where you have an example of it. Uh, you can also think of the um, British Secret Service building uh, yes. and the Thames. Um, There's a lot in things. London, actually. Yeah, yeah the, the Barbican is a big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, those buildings, they have, they have a function. Yes. And that function, back in the day, was to create lots of living space for people who might not be able to afford living space yep. anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Very noble aim. W would you, in that sense, think of this, because the term for it is brutalism, mm -hmm. would you think of that as, as um, hostile architecture? So um, I think that the, the, the brutalist structures are perhaps now hostile architecture. 
-hmm. or I, I think they become hostile architecture through the through allowing them to fall into disrepair or mm -hmm. you know something like that um i think actually like the the push towards uh, creating large amounts of housing that is like freely accessible um and is efficient to make and you know structurally sound and all of that oh, and i think that's brilliant yes. yeah. you know like that's there's nothing wrong with any of that and it's mm -hmm. you know that's the solution to homelessness, right? Is to give people houses. Um, yeah. The I don't think that they are in essence hostile architecture, but I, I think they become symbols of the state's sort of disregard for mm -hmm. the people that those buildings are designed for um, because yeah, they are allowed to fall into disrepair. Um, they're, I've, I found like when I when I first started looking at buildings like this that they were, they were uncomfortable to look at. They were they felt oppressive. But you know, originally these buildings were designed with, like the raw concrete is meant to be honest and it's meant to be like without pretense. Um, it's 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 without ornament because it's not trying to be anything that it's not, which I, I really appreciate the sort of ideology behind that. Um, but at the same time, people are not purely functional beings. People have aesthetic needs as well as uh, material needs. Yeah. And I, I actually, this, this insight came from a, a pupil of mine um, and, and it, it struck me really uh, quite intensely it's really stayed with me and that all you need to do to make brutalism beautiful is fill it with plants you just need to allow green to make its way in amongst the concrete and all of a sudden it takes on this incredible new life and it, it my jaw just dropped just thinking about the idea of these yeah. these buildings and, and i've come round to brutalism um long before we wrote the record I, I i really love brutalism it must be said um it, for its ideas for its bold designs and all the rest of it but um to to imagine all of these structures um encased in leaves and flowers is it's just such a beautiful thought um so i i don't think the oppression or oppressiveness of the concrete right yeah, exactly. And you're you're introducing life to to the uh, utilitarianness of it, um, which is kind of what's missing, right? We are we're trying to make the world better for people, not an amorphous mass of needy blobs, right? Like we need to meet the needs of people, and I think yeah. If we could find a way to do that, that'd be great. Well, there, there are um, there are ideas like that. For example, the Singapore government who says that uh, every new building that is being pulled up, every new skyscraper that is built around there needs to have um, a green element added on one of the sites. Mm. And there are even people mm. who say that basically all sites should be should be covered in green as much as possible um 
But then you would probably agree with me that hostile architecture as architecture um, is also very often defined by its place in time. Back in the 70s and 60s, I still remember the university that I went to, University of Cologne, one of the buildings got an award for highly pedagogical uh, for being a highly pedagogical building because it was basically all in raw concrete. But I still remember going to that university at the beginning or shortly after the millennium and I thought like, well, shit, that place looks less. <laughs> and uh, yeah. 30, 40 years ago, people thought of that is state of the art. So does our definition or our image of brutal architecture, of hostile architecture, also depend on time? I do think that, actually. I think, and this is something that I think sort of delves maybe a little more into the philosophy of the record, is looking at the hostile architecture that surrounds us, not the, not the specific instances of hostile architecture, like anti-homo spikes, but, but the buildings the brutalist buildings and, and so on and so forth they're hauntological objects they are um ideas of a future that never came uh, mm. but 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 we know that it was a future that was hoped for and its failure yeah. haunts us um and this is something like mark fisher who's like the, the major philosophical um backbone of the record um his writing he talks a lot about these uh, the lost futures that are present in our our society and our culture um and i definitely i really really connected with that and the the buildings that i was seeing around me and people's attitude towards them as which i think yeah i totally agree with what you're saying i think that the these are a times idea of how to make the world a better place but now the world is not a better place, and there's still this this feeling there, and those buildings just kind of hammer it home, and it can be quite disheartening, I think, for a lot of people to to witness that. Uh, although I love your answer, I'm a little unhappy about it because I was hoping that you would say no because I thought of such a brilliant anti-example against your possible no, but I still want to point that out because I think there's also something in there what you just mentioned. Um, I was thinking about St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, constructed mm. 16th, 17th century. We all know that. When it was constructed, it was constructed, well, on the one side, of course, as a vanity thing, mm. know that. but on the other side, it was also, of course, constructed as a place of worship to give people hope, basically, right? Mm. Yeah, And back then, people saw that letter thing first, you know, okay, this is a place where we can pray to God and where we can find hope. Yeah. Nowadays, with the uh, lessening importance of religion, we are able to see this building completely vice versa, because, of course, beautiful building, nice to look at, blah, 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 blah. But... I think nowadays we can also very quickly see this is a result of a decades-long mental enslavement of the papacy in order to squeeze the last buck out of a people in order to build that enormous gargantuan thing in the middle of Rome. Mm -hmm. 
So something that was seen positively back then, again, positive beginning, turned totally around. And that there we see it basically has got nothing to do with the outer appearance. Mm -hmm. St. Peter's is still a beautiful basilica. Yes. But it is also a place that is grounded on the hostile thought of you are being able to buy yourself out of uh, of hell and Excellent. the enslavement that went along with that, the mental enslavement. Mm. You said something that I would like to ask you before we slowly come to the end. You said, or you were speaking about architecture and the way that it in some ways influences our present, mm -hmm. because of course it does. But the question is, should architecture nowadays think more about the future or more about the present? Um, to to, to well, make a little in, injunction into there, because I think we can both agree that places like Billionaire's Row, that is just thinking about yeah. neither. It's just thinking about the book. Yes. Um, I think, well, architecture that is that is coming and is being built right now has to think of the future it doesn't have a choice because for a start our our ecology our climate is changing and things that ha are being built now must withstand a changing climate at this point it's like you know obviously i you know will always campaign to stop reduce try to deal with climate change but fundamentally we are at the point where permanent damage has already been done so um we need houses that are that can that are air conditioned and are well insulated um we need housing being built in places that are not vulnerable to flooding and we need housing that can uh, withstand the, sorry to interrupt you there high winds they are built go ahead. at a point at a point where flooding is unavoidable or where you can just simply not getting around it yeah where you at least have to build houses that can withstand flooding you know yeah um the, the, all of these things have to be considered now because capital has pushed the world too far um but I I don't actually think you need to build too much in the way of new things in order to address the issues that are happening at this current moment. Mm -hmm. In the world of today, we could end homelessness easily. There are more empty yes. houses than homeless people by a very wide margin. We need only put them in, you know? And that is only being stopped through the might of capital. Like those barriers just need removed. And like the, the issues with um, like housing uh, people who have migrated from their own home countries all could be solved. It's just that all of these, these uh, places of living are held back they're they're boundaried they're bordered off i see a lot of um 
student housing being built. That's a really, really common thing in cities in Scotland is a lot of student housing specifically being built. And there's a lot of money to be made there, you know, uh, and the, the conditions in there are not necessarily all that pleasant. Students are there all the time, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, um, yeah, the, the, there's so much, it's, it's bizarre seeing new places being built when old places could be used. And this, yeah. this angers me greatly is that we have the means we have the resources as that that um as that chat pile record that came out this year uh was saying and, and, and i know some people criticized that song why for being maybe um naive or kind of childlike in its it's wondering like why do people have to live outside but it's a completely apt question to ask like you know with with all of the resources we have like what's stopping you and the answer to that question should be obvious um and if it's not then if people listen to that song then at least they'll be thinking about it um should be um i have i have one thing that might give you a little bit of hope and that is the city of amsterdam um, my wife was there a few years ago on holiday and she went on a tour with two of her friends and their tour guide uh, told them something and I hope I still get it right. Um, there is a possibility of basically getting a house or an apartment in Amsterdam without buying it but being able to prove that nobody has lived there, nobody has gone into there, nobody has done anything in there for a year that's incredible the, if that the... is true then that to me should be applied to every major city i i completely agree like if if yeah if somewhere has lay has has lain empty for a year open the doors yeah. let them in <laughs> yeah and last question become before we come to our quick fire round um mm. Can architecture, in a way, influence and inspire, or also, on the other hand, incite and ignite people to think about their situation and maybe go about changing it? I found two of your songs where I think there is something close to the second one, you know, like incite and ignite. In Tragic Heroine, you speak about fueled with your labor, built with your bones. There are no great men, only the great many. Mm. Where you're basically again referring to people not being treated as individuals, but like a great, great mass, great and gray mass. And there is also something in apathy as arsenic lethargy is led, where you say, with the workers bleeding, the horses beaten, God forbid that you should ever want a home. Mm. Um, where I guess the second one also talks about the rich who don't give back. Mm. So would you say that architecture can influence or incite people? Um, I think the, the, the worst of architecture can provoke a response in people. Absolutely. Um, I think architecture is, is an art form. Uh, the fact that it is predominantly an art form that is for use 
is um, important to consider um, because you know the the architect must not uh, put their own personal expression above the uh, above the use of the building. Um, which is like you know the vanity projects come in 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 there you know like like I am great I am the great man and this is my my legacy um, and that's kind of what no great man is talking about um, it's also talking about the great man theory of history um, and how stupid that is um, like history is made by people doing stuff not by one guy thinking with his big smart boy brain uh, about how to do things right. Um, but yeah, like, I, I do think that architecture, like any art form, can inspire people. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at, I, I think in the context of film and where architecture is used as part of another art form, it is particularly potent. So, um, I mean, I, I love Blade Runner. I think that's an, a really incredible piece of uh, work, and architecture is is almost a character in Blade Runner and the, the world of Blade Runner at large. And loads of different uh, films use architecture, set dressing, the environment in order to to tell stories, to make people feel things, and to yeah, like inspire them to do something. Um, so absolutely, um, I think what it takes is for people to kind of find the art in the world around them, um, and I think that's one of the one of the things that is missing in a lot of modern cities that are sort of uh, in many ways stripped of their soul. Um, I, I find there's there's a I didn't use it on the album, but there was a lyric I was writing. Um, that was about looking for the history above the shop fronts. So when you when you're walking through a city and you look sort of around yeah, you, yeah, you, you only look at the shop fronts, but you don't look at the right. stories above it, right? But if you look above, you see a whole new aspect of a city, and you see yeah. like lots of things that you wouldn't necessarily have thought about. You like, I mean, in Glasgow, one of the, if you're in a particular part of the city, in Merchant City you can look above and you, all of a sudden you have an understanding that the buildings are built with uh, money from the slave trade. And now you have a better understanding of, of your entire world because you just looked up. Um, and I like doing what we might call like street archaeology. Like when, when people like take down a sign from a shop that's been there for a while and you see the sign from a previous shop, like yeah. that's that's maybe decades old or something like that. I love that sort of thing. So if if people were able to to see the art in the world around them, um, and obviously I think it's brought into focus by things like film. Um, but if they could do that without that assistance, I think that would be something really beautiful. I think we'd see a lot more uh a lot more of the impact of our architecture as an art form on people. And you would also at the same time see less capitalism and more art. It's funny that you mentioned Blade Runner because, um, of course, I was also 
trying to think of uh, movie examples. Blade Runner was one in my mind. And another one that came to my mind was Clockwork Orange. Oh, where, yes. Where you yep. even have a brutalist environment. And here, that brutalist environment is even used in a way as if it should be an explanation for Alex and his gang, for why mm. they became what they are. Yeah, I mean, the, the architecture in A Clockwork Orange is emblematic of the society that the story takes place in. And Alex is a product of his environment. In, Completely. In, yeah. Which is, of course, why the, the viewer's relationship with him as a character is so complex. Um, really, yeah. yeah. It's really a difficult thing. Um, I, I've done that with students. And very often they don't even notice when their own attitude towards him changes. Yeah. So, Alistair, first of all, before we come to our bigger, uh, before we come to our, our, our quick fire round at the end, first of all, thank you for this in-depth interview. Uh, for everybody out there, I can only once again remind you of listening to Hostile Architecture. It will give you lots of food for thought and also a lot of reason to bang your head and move your feet. Our <laughs> quick fire round. I'm pretty proud of some of these. Okay. okay. Uh, I'll give you two alternatives and you have to choose one of them and maybe give a short explanation for your choice. Gotcha. I know you have spent time in Glasgow and Edinburgh, so that's why I don't show. That's why I didn't choose those two, but I chose to give you Dundee versus Aberdeen. Oh man! Oh, that's really difficult. Um, oh, I'd. I'm gonna go. Oh no. Oh no, that's really hard. Um, it will not get more. It will not get more <laughs> um, You know, I'd probably have to choose Dundee. Uh, I, I'd choose Dundee. Um, Aberdeen is a grim place. Um, and I like it a lot, but I like a lot of grim things and we must accept <laughs> that it is a grim place. Um, I heard that it's, it's radiation levels are higher, uh, than the rest of the Scotland. So that's okay. interesting. Um, it's apparently to do with the granite that most of Aberdeen is made of slightly radioactive. Um, Dundee, I have that's some connection teacher, with, by the way. Tom. Well, exactly. Yes. Um, some of, uh, Dundee, I have some small connection with. Like my sister went there for her oh. um, animation degree, so yeah, I've been there a few times, and I quite like it. Um, and it, it's quite close to Edinburgh, and Glasgow, so it wouldn't be hard <laughs> to get back. <laughs> okay, as I know that you also have some Irish roots, Cork versus Dublin. Oh man. Um. My answer is easy because I studied there. <laughs> well, um, the thing is, you know, you'd know I was from Cork uh, if if I said Cork. They quite 
quite big fans of Cork in Cork. Um, I haven't really spent much time there, but I do have a couple of friends uh, for whom Cork is very special. Um, Dublin has like gigs and stuff like that, which would be nice. Um, if I'm honest, I mean, like my family's from north of the border in, in know, Belfast. But, 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 so don't move around. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Fine, fine, fine. Dublin. I'll I'll say Dublin, and I'm very well, sorry must to all the people from Cork. Anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I studied at UCC, so I'm I'm biased there. Um, <laughs> getting in, getting into music, uh, John Zorn or Bathory? Completely oh, Bathory. Different, different. Oh, I thought that would be something where you would have a lot of explaining to do. Um, no, no, um, Bathory, um, like really um, foundational, formative band for me um and i i just i just love a bathroom record uh sorry no competition apologies to john zorn well if john zorn listens to this man come, <laughs> come to me will we'll, mr zorn well, will do anything for you john you have one thing over bathory and that that's you're still alive so there you go oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> dillinger escape plan or converge I convert. Uh, I like I would have thought you would take Dillinger. Uh, I, well, yeah, it's it's a little weirder, a little more mathy, but I think the energy that Converge bring to their music is like out of those two, unparalleled. I I just oh, the way they hit the drums, man! <laughs> like it's it, I love watching Converge play. I, I think I'd have a lot more fun. Uh, watching and listening to Converge than I would Dillinger, where it's it's very precise and it's very technical, and I really appreciate that. But it's that's not what I love about music. I love uh, like personal expression and emotion, uh, and I think Converge bring that in a more tangible way than Dillinger do. Yeah, and the live shows are. I mean, I've seen both bands. A, a heavy number of times and I was always fascinated with watching Dillinger and also Pusciato being a second incarnation of Mike Patton um, <laughs> but nothing beats Converge Life yes there you go um, as you are Scottish I thought about Scottish writers and I came up with one and I'll give you two books by him and you have to choose Train spotting or junkie? Train spotting. I mean, it's it's a classic for a reason. It's a, classic um, reason. It's a really special book. Some more music. Roadburn or Arctangent? Roadburn. Uh, <laughs> I I. In honesty, I haven't been to Arctangent, but um, I. Roadburn. I have been to Roadburn. Uh, yeah, and nothing beats I, nothing beats it. It's it's not only is it a wonderful, um, like in terms of it, it's it's got a wonderful lineup, um, filled with things that I don't know and learn to love, and things that I do know and I'm spellbound by, um, but like I think the, I really loved the, the community aspect of it. I met so many people who became friends. Um, 
and one of the really special things about it is that like it's it's music festival but emphasis on music it's a music festival not a music festival like yeah. it's it's carefully curated and yeah i i loved it um, and yeah. we actually went to some of the the panels that some of the artists were doing and, and they were they were brilliant just like seeing people talk about their process and about their relationship with the art it's really special um, next year you're sorry, going to be even an even nicer person <gasps> me are you going to uh, always of course we will we will have to meet for a drink at some point getting back into our questions fall of ifrafa or lightbearer oh i don't really listen to either of them uh so that's that's a shame um but but of course i have to make a choice so let's go uh purely based on their names uh <laughs> fall of Ifrafa. fall fall of fall of Ifrafa or lightbearer Ooh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with fall of fall of fall of, blah, 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 fall of, of my father. You this is something <laughs> that you should check out. Fall of Ifrafa, one of the bands by Alex uh, Bradshaw. All his all his bands are awesome, but Fall of Ifrafa holds a special place in my heart. I will check them out. Um, um, they both sound we, we like they'd be about, great um, great yeah. Dungeons and Dragons characters. <laughs> we were talking about uh, botanists. So yes. Would you rather listen to Botanist or one of the side projects called Thief? Oh, Thief are really good though. Um, yeah. Thief are really, really amazing. Uh, so that that's actually quite tricky. But I, I do love Botanist. I, I think there's something really special. And, and obviously, like, there's, you could argue that it's, it's a, you know, gimmicky, but I, I really don't think so. I think that, like, it's, the use of the dulcimer really connects you with the subject matter. It's just really well created music. Um, yeah, I find I find botanist really compelling. Um, so, uh, kudos to Thief, amazing project. But uh, yeah, botanist. We got two more to go. Righto. Uh, next up is an artist that is very very close to my heart, and I give you two bands by Toby Driver. Ah. Uh. Kayo Dot or Maudlin the Well? Oh, oh no. <laughs> yes. Don't make me choose. Yes. Um, you know, Maudlin of the Well are, I mean, I can't say anything that people haven't already said. An incredibly special band. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to say Kayo Dot. But the main reason for that is that, um, like Toby Driver is an incredible musician and artist, and I just want to see what he does next all the time. Like I just want to see what the next thing is, rather than dwelling on what has come before. I'm excited to see what comes next. Um, but also, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I got to gig once with Kyo Dot, and they're just what a band to watch what an incredible band to watch um and so with the hope that i'll get to see that again and maybe mm -hmm. maybe even play with them uh maybe that'll happen um 
Toyota. Very special and band. Last question. Of course, I also have to give you two Scottish bands. Oof. Mokwai or Arab Strap? Ah. And I'm okay. glad that nobody asks me that because I can yeah. decide either way. Um, I'm going to say Mogwai. Um, I got into Mogwai right at the end of high school. Um, and it was, I, I remember I was in art class and I was listening to Primordial on the speakers and another teacher came in and said, that reminds me of Mogwai. And I was like, who are Mogwai? Um, and Obviously, they didn't really sound all that much like Primordial, but the um, th that was the, the beginning of of, uh, of my love affair with Mogwai, who um, are just post rock giants. Eh? Like they're they're just amazing. Um, I haven't seen them yet, actually, which is terrible. But I'll 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 get to it at some point, I'm sure. Take good take good earplugs, my friend. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, so long as they're louder than Manowar, uh, as you said. I, I'm not sure. I, I think I think Manowar regained that title, but I'm not sure. But uh, Mockway are definitely loud as fuck. <laughs> Good lads. Uh, so, Alistair, thanks for being on the show. Everybody, listen to Hostel Architecture or also their first album. Uh, I forgot the name because it's so long and complicated. <laughs> Speak not of a long dawnum. Ladonum quandary. Uh, I'm so glad that like the interviews don't ask me what that means anymore. I'm I'm so well, tired know, of talking I know about it. Ladon. I even looked it up. So yeah, good man. <laughs> so uh, listen, listen to the band. Also give their thoughts some time to sink in. Uh, whether you like everything that we said about capitalism being an enslavement process, yes or no? Uh, you can form your own mind. If you have comments on that, feel free to hit them on our socials. And uh, Alistair, thanks for being on the show. Uh, thank you for such a lovely conversation. This was honestly just a, just a joy. Same as well. Take care, my friend. And yourself. Thank you. <laughs>